to find something. Usually it's like a joke or a story, and I like telling stories, but I couldn't think of one that was really applicable, and so I'm struggling. It was the last part of my sermon, so I figured I would just share something that has been happening with me recently, and uh, I'll just see how that goes. When Noreen and I got married, we got married back in May, you know that saying where you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans? You know, so we kind of had a little experience like that. So we got married and we thought, you know, going to work at the Christian school and I'm going to be here in, in ministry and uh, things were going great. Four months into it, I'm sitting down on the couch and my wife sits beside me and shows me a positive pregnancy test. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming, right? So that was about 10 weeks, so we're 10 weeks along, really excited. If you think you're surprised, I stood... Sit, well, I was sitting, and I just stared at the TV for 45 minutes. I can't believe it. Can't believe it. No way. And so Noreen's been dying every single Sunday. She's like, can we tell them? Can we tell them? And I'm like, you've been pregnant for two weeks, Noreen. Let's wait a little bit. And so now she's really happy. Now the cat's out of the bag. So now that I got your attention, we can get right into the sermon. Oh, sure. That would be great. Lord, thank you so much for this fine young man, and uh, we're so excited for he and Noreen now as uh, they got a little one coming on the way. So I just ask that you pour your blessing over him today and uh, let his message be your words for us that you uh, deliver through him. And we thank you for both he and Noreen being part of our church family here. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. All right. So today we're continuing along in the series that Jeff's been taking us through, through the uh, Gospel of Mark, called Insurrection. And I've really enjoyed, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series. You know, at first I was like, Jeff, why are we going so slow? We're going like, you know, like two verses at a time. We're still in chapter one. But it's amazing when you get into studying, you know, in the Gospel of Mark, just like every verse, it's just like a punch, right? Like it's really powerful. And so today I'm going to be uh, speaking on the call of the disciple, the f- disciples, the four fishermen that Jesus calls. And, you know, I was looking at it, and I was like, well, it doesn't seem like there's much in there, right? Like, he just goes, he calls them, they go. Fantastic. But then I started studying it and getting into it, because Jeff, you know, he's a mind type, so he just, like, unloads all this research at me to read. And I'm a heart type, so I wasn't super excited to do all the reading. But as I was reading more and more, I was like, holy smokes, this might be, like, one of the biggest things in the Bible. Jeff, why are you giving this to me to preach on? What is going on here? And so I'm going to give it a go. So today, uh, if you want to follow along, it's going to be in Mark 1, verses 16 to 20. Today, after I read it, we're going to get into uh, four different call maybe aspects of, of this call that Jesus gives to his disciples and that he's also giving to us. And we're going to draw some parallels and, uh, as to why it was important for them or why it's important to us because this call is huge, the call to follow Jesus. And so two of them are kind of describing something about the call, and two of them are talking about some of the requirements in order to fulfill this call for us as followers of Christ. So I'm going to read here in Mark 1, verse 16 to 20. It says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. 
When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, for the gospel of Mark and the powerful message it has. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak through me today, calm my nerves, and um, that we'd be able to learn about the call of the disciples and the call for us as your disciples and what that means for us and how we can fulfill that. Amen. So the first point we're going to focus on is how this call to the disciples and to us is so unexpected. It's kind of a little bit like, you know, controversial. It's, it's a bit out of the norm of what's happening there. In order to understand that, we're going to learn a bit about kind of the context of what's happening here. And so I, I'm a major, like, history buff. I love getting into and reading about historical context, stuff like that. So I'm going to um, kind of share what I've been learning with you. And that will help us to understand just exactly what's happening here. So the first thing we need to understand is the educational system in Galilee. Now, Galilee was actually quite a religious place in Israel. There was a lot of people who were very smart. And there's a couple of misconceptions we have about these fishermen. And one is that they maybe have been uneducated. Maybe they were just, you know, lowly fishermen. And they didn't really know much about scriptures and things like that. And maybe they just thought, you know, Jesus had a cool message. and might have been better than what they were doing there. So they left and followed him. But children in Galilee at the age of five, they enter into school. And each town would hire a rabbi. And a rabbi, meaning teacher, would come and teach the children there. So what they would study at that young age is they would study the Torah. And the Torah is kind of the early part of the Old Testament. Not only would they learn it, but at such a young age, they would memorize it. Now for me, when I was reading that, I was like, holy smokes. I have enough trouble just memorizing like five memory verses, right, at the time. I can't imagine like memorizing the book of Numbers. Can you imagine? That gets crazy. I have a hard enough time slugging through that thing when I'm reading through it because it's just, it gets a little bit dry, right? Can you imagine being able to recite it anywhere at the age of like five to ten? But that's what these kids were doing. And the reason why they did memorization of the Torah was, one, because it was kind of how they learned. They learned through memorization uh, best. But two, each town only had one scroll of the Torah. And it'd be a little bit awkward if you get up to do your morning devotions and you have to go stand in line for half the morning because the whole town wants to do their morning devotions and there's one scroll for everybody. Did you imagine if Nelson had one Bible and we all had to try to, you know, meditate on scripture. And so what they would do is they'd memorize it. So what we can assume is that these fishermen had the Torah memorized. They did study it. And so when Jesus would make reference to the Old Testament, they kind of knew what was, what was going on. And so they memorized it so that when they're at work, when they're at school, they'd be able to just recite these scripture verses and meditate on them. Wouldn't that be great if we did that? Like we memorized just a whole big chunk of scripture so that we could just meditate on it when we're at work, you know, and just anywhere at home. It's fantastic. And so that was just, that's like their elementary school. So it's already pretty intense, right? And these fishermen did go through that. Now, the best of the best of that group would advance to the next step, which was called Beth Midrash, I believe. We can think of it as like secondary school. So what we can tell is that these disciples went to the elementary school level and memorized the Torah, but they weren't the best of the best, and they didn't advance. 
Everyone else who didn't advance, they would go home and they would learn the family trade. And that's where we find them there. In secondary school, they would learn about the interpretations of the Torah and also get into the prophets. And they would learn about that. And if they were the top of that class, then they would move on again. If not, you go back to the family trade. Those who were the best of the best got to do something else. What they had to do is they would leave their home and they would go and they would find a rabbi. Oftentimes it wouldn't be the rabbi of kind of their hometown, but they'd find a rabbi and they'd go to this rabbi and they would say, can I follow you? And the rabbi would look at them, would maybe ask them some questions, maybe consult with their hometown rabbi who taught them. And if those students were good enough, the rabbi would allow it. If they weren't, then that was kind of the end, or they'd try again with a different rabbi, or they'd study more. But it was like the best of the best of the best got to follow the rabbi. And so Jesus is often called rabbi in the gospel. In fact, there's, some, there's a few references early on in some of the gospels of Jesus going through this educational system, like when he's 12 and he's talking with the teachers at the festival and things like that. There's a little bit of references. There's no, I don't think there's really any reference to him following a rabbi himself, but what's interesting is he's about the age 30 when he goes into ministry, right? That is about the age that someone would become a rabbi. So you'd study under a rabbi, then when you were 30, you would become one. And so Jesus was considered a rabbi. So what's so weird about this is that Jesus, well, it's two things. First off, Jesus went to the disciples. That doesn't happen. Disciples go to the rabbi, and the rabbi then goes and sees if they're worthy or not. But Jesus went to them, which is already pretty weird, right? It's out of the norm. It's not normal. It's not how things are done. Second thing is that he went to people who, were, who didn't succeed, people who didn't pass the first phase of education. Jesus probably could have gone to people who were really you know, intelligent, people who had been studying Scripture and different interpretations of the Scripture. He could have gone out and looked for the best of the best, but he didn't. He went out and set out these fishermen. So I have the privilege of working with youth and, and young adults, but I think, well, what I see a lot of is I see that the world has a message for not only youth, but I think the world has a message for everybody, and that message is you're not good enough. Have you ever felt like the world is always telling you what you need to do to attain a certain level? You know, you need to be fitter, you need to be wealthier, you need to be smarter, you need to be more beautiful than that, and you have to do all these things in order to achieve a certain level in our society. So I think that a lot of times we ourselves can, can think that we're not good enough. But what's so amazing is that just like the disciples, Jesus comes to us where we're at while we're still sinners, you know, and we're kind of screw-ups a little bit, right? Like we don't have it together. Jesus isn't out looking to only save the people who have it all together. He goes to the broken, and he goes to the people who aren't worthy of it. And he goes to them, and he calls them, and he's calling us, even though we're not worthy of it. But I think that oftentimes, a lot of hesitation that people have to accepting the call of Christ is that, well, why me? I'm not good enough. You know? But that's not up to us to decide, is it? There's a, another, there's a reference in John where Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You know, Jesus is calling us where we're at, and it's not up to us to decide who is worthy and who is not of that call.
So that's the first one, is that this call is very unexpected. Even in today's religions, you know, a lot of it is like here is kind of the religious text. Here's what you got to do to get to God. You have to do these things, climb this ladder, like that. But Jesus is calling to us when we're not worthy of it. The second thing is that this call requires sacrifice. When I first read this passage, what I imagined is that these disciples were sitting there fishing, and they were like, they hear this call, they're like, great, this is a dead-end job anyways. This sounds like something cool, so I'm going to go. And we don't really think about the sacrifice that they were making and the magnitude of that sacrifice. And there's two important things to remember here in order to understand what the disciples are giving up to follow Jesus. First thing is we have this misconception that the fishermen are poor, that they're just kind of, you know, lower-class citizens trying to scrape by just by what they can catch. That's actually not the case here. The Sea of Galilee actually was quite abundant with fish. We could probably put the fishermen at more of a middle class or maybe upper middle class in terms of finances. In fact, there's reference, you know, to Zebedee having hired men. They had this business that, um, that was doing well enough that they could hire additional help. And so what these disciples were giving up, they were giving up financial security because this was an okay job, right? And they were doing fine. They were safe and things were going to keep going. The second thing is that they left their family trade. Now, I mentioned earlier about how students who didn't make the cut would go back and learn their family trade. Family trades would go from generation to generation to generation. In fact, it was not uncommon for like a fisherman trade, family doing fishing, to be doing that for centuries. Centuries, can you imagine? That's very different than today. We don't have family businesses that go that long. So when these disciples are leaving the fishing boats and following Jesus, they're not just leaving a job, they're leaving their financial security and they're leaving their family's future, kind of their family's legacy or like everything that it was because they didn't have kids and so that was kind of it, right? If they didn't pick up that family trade, that was it for the family line. That, and so they abandoned that. They, they sacrificed their finances, they sacrificed their family's future and that's just huge. In fact, it was the biggest thing they could have given up, and they did it. For, like I said, for us, we don't have family uh, trades that get passed down from generation to generation. The closest thing actually is, is in my family. My dad, he's a farmer, and we recently got a plaque, I think it was, well, like five, five years ago maybe, and it was from the Alberta government. It said, congratulations on farming the same land for 100 years. And so you can imagine how my father felt when I told him I wanted to be a pastor and not a farmer. And so, but, you know, he was gracious enough to, to allow me to pursue my dreams. And that's what we do, right? Like we ask our children when they're done high school, hey, what do you want to do? What are your aspirations? And it can be anything, engineering, it could be drama, it could be anything. And we say, you know what, go study it, go on with my blessing and pursue your dreams. We don't have an expectation that our kids are going to inherit what we do for a career and continue on the line. But there are things in our lives that we hold on to very tightly. And I think, I know for me, I've been challenged with this and that there's something, you know, we can sit here and we can sing and we can worship and say, you know, we're giving it all up to Jesus, but subconsciously, you know, we're thinking, give it all up to Jesus as long as it's not my kids, you know, or as long as it's not my family, as long as it's not my career. And if Jesus were to ask us to give that up, it would actually be quite a crisis. You know, like if Jesus had asked you to, you know, 
sacrifice your, your family to, for the mission, for the call, it would be really hard, or your career, or your financial security. There are things that we hold on to, even as followers of Christ, that, that sort of keep us from fully living out the call that Jesus gives us. And I know I've been challenged with that as well, in that, but Jesus makes some pretty bold statements, right? You know, like there's people who, there's a guy who asks if he can go bury his d- dead father, and Jesus says, no, you, we gotta go. And um, there are people who have trouble parting with their wealth, and Jesus says, you gotta be able to, you know, even like, hate your family. Like he uses those words. Like it's, it's pretty intense what Jesus is asking, and we can't take this call lightly, what it's asking for. We can't give it 99%. We have to give it the full hundred in order to fully live out our call as his followers. So that's the second thing. This call requires immense sacrifice. The third thing is that this call is a journey. Jesus doesn't come up to these fishermen and says, if you come and I'm just going to make you, just, I'm gonna make you fishers of men, and it's going to be perfect. All right, you're on board. Go forth and spread the gospel throughout the whole world. No, he says, before that, you have to follow me. The, um, I talked about the rabbis and the students who went to study under them. And if a student was accepted, they'd be called a Talmud, I believe it's called. And so these Talmuds, like in our education system today, my wife is a teacher. And the relationship she has with her students is that they would fulfill these, they would pass these tests, they would complete these assignments in order to gain her kind of approval, her stamp of approval in order to advance to the next grade or in order to go to a better university or things like that. And that's the extent of the relationship, really, is that these kids are trying to get her approval, fulfill these tasks, and that's it. It was very different for the Talmuds and the rabbis. The rabbis didn't give pop quizzes. The rabbis didn't do tests, didn't have essays. You know, there was a reason why people would leave their families and follow the rabbi. And the reason is because the relationship between the student and the rabbi was that the student wanted to become like the rabbi. So that's why they would follow them so closely because it wasn't just about like what they said, but it was about who were they talking to? How did they speak to others? How did they handle money? Where did they go? Why did they do this or that? What's their attitude? And the student would study this person, this rabbi, in order to become like them. But it was a journey. It was something that would take years. It wasn't something that you can't just instantly become like your rabbi. In the same way, we can't instantly become like Christ. When we accept the call to follow him, it's not a magic trick that suddenly we have our lives together and it's all perfect. No, it's a journey. And this journey takes our whole lives to complete, right? Never in this lifetime are you going to be completely like Christ There's nothing we can do ourselves to get there, but we go on this journey to become like him. That's why we study God's word, because we're studying what Jesus said, who he was talking to, you know, what he said about these different topics, his actions, the places he went, the way he treated people, you know, and we're studying that in order to become like our rabbi. Jesus is our rabbi. We are following him in order to become like him. I find it heartbreaking at times when you hear stories about people who get turned away from the church or people who have a negative um, idea of Christianity and the reason being because they felt looked down on or judged by followers of Christ. I find that really hard to hear about because 
Because the only difference, I think, between us and non-believers is that we've accepted that call that's been extended to everybody. There's nothing that we've done, like I said, there's nothing that we've done to make ourselves better than everybody else. And so the whole idea of looking down on others or even looking down on other Christians, there's no, like, hierarchy in Christianity, right? We're all together journeying behind our rabbi. In fact, the disciples, that's one of the things that they had to learn because they had these arguments about who was the greatest and they didn't get it. It's that we're all just be focusing on Jesus and journeying with him. We're walking side by side. And so when Jesus says to be fishers of men, we ourselves can't think that, oh, I'm going to go save the world. I'm going to go help you. It's like, no, I'm going to tell you what Jesus has already done for you and so that you can accept that call and journey right beside me and we can walk together on this path. That's what it's about. You know, there's actually a a different translation I was reading about when it says to... uh, I will make you fishers of men. The other translation, I will make you to become fishers of men. But first you have to follow me. Final thing, number four, is that this call demands a response. Jesus didn't go out to the disciples and say, this is what I'm offering. I'm going to stay at the inn in town there. Why don't you take a few days, think about it, get back to me with any questions, and we'll go from there. Jesus walks up to him. And he says, come follow me. He lays it out on the line. You know, there needed to be a response. If the disciples had said, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't think Jesus would have stuck around. I think he would have moved on. And in the same way, like if you haven't, um, if you haven't accepted Christ, you know, when he makes that call to us, that's a call that needs a decision. To not make a decision is to make a decision. You know, and there are people who, who say no, and then, you know, and later they do give their life over to Christ. But the reality is we don't know how long we have, right? We hear stories about people who are taking so young, and we have no idea where we're going to go. And so this demands a response. There's no such thing as not responding to the call of Jesus. It's yes or no. When the one true God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, comes to you where you are at and offers to radically transform your life, and make a way for you to be saved from eternal death, that is not something that we can really say, okay, I'll think about it and I'll get back to you, God. That doesn't work. You're at a fork in the road, and you have to go one way or the other. There's no standing there. Jesus offers life, but in order for us to choose life, we have to first give up everything to him. We have to sacrifice it all to follow him, to truly experience this call, we have, must place our complete trust in him only when we can truly experience how this journey with him will change our lives in ways that we'd never imagine. This unexpected call that requires immense sacrifice that, you know, is a journey that we're going on and one that demands a response. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so encouraged to read about the call of the disciples and we pray that, um, that anybody here who, who's maybe never heard this message or they've heard it and never um, thought about accepting that call, I pray that you'd be working in their hearts. I pray that you'd be working in our hearts as we follow you side by side together, that we'd realize that this is a journey that requires that we give up everything, just like the disciples had to give up everything. Lord, I pray that if we're holding on to something in our heart, that if we're holding on to something we're not giving up, that you would really uh, work in our hearts so that we can find out what that is and be able to give it up to you, God. 
And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, be with us this week and um, yeah, as we journey together. Amen.